Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, please be turning. We made it partway into chapter 1. Last Sunday, I I came up and audaciously said, Happy Birthday, anticipating we would discuss the birth of John the Baptist, but we stopped right before that. So that's where we're going to pick up at verse 57. But I just want to share a little bit of, of what we're looking at this morning. Here we are a birthday of John the Baptist, Lord willing, a birthday, the birth of Jesus Christ. So we get two birthdays and Christmas and all kinds of things packaged together here. I'd like to kind of, it's the old Toastmasters thing of tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. Have you ever heard that before? Anybody do Toastmasters, right? And so this is where I'd like to go and what I'd like to help us to see here. It's, it's July, obviously, right? But this morning will be Christmas in July, okay? Because we're discussing the birth of Jesus Christ, Christmas. And as we see that, I think it's fun to look at it in a way that maybe is stripped away from all the garland and lights and presents and, and, and things that sometimes can clutter the true message, the, the heart of the story, maybe what we would call a linchpin of what Christmas is all about. I have right here a hinge. Maybe you can't see it in the back, but it's a hinge to a door. You're probably familiar with it. And I have another hinge. Wow, I've got two hinges. But what do I need for this hinge to be effective, to be productive? to do what it was designed to do. What do I need? I need a lynch pin. I need something that holds the hinge together, right? This morning, we're going to be talking about the lynch pin. We're going to be talking about that which holds the two sides together. As we come to Luke, Luke, our author, is helping us to understand how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He starts off talking about John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. One hinge. And then he talks about the enunciation of the birth of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the New Testament. We need that linchpin. These two can swing together. He talks about Israel. And the promises of Israel, the covenants with Israel. But he talks about the church and the fulfillment of the promises. He talks about the law and liberty, this henchpin. We go from B.C., before Christ, to A.D., Anno Domini. What's at the middle of B.C. and A.D.? The linchpin, Christmas, Jesus Christ. This is what holds it all together. And we see here these two things in parallel. You know, a lot of times as you read your Bible, I know there's all kinds of ways to approach this, but as a piece of literature, God has given us a story. We should read it as it was written to us and just kind of put it all together. But some of us, I think, have habits that 
help us to miss some of the big picture sometimes. One of the habits might be to just pick a verse and read it and meditate on it. That's not bad. You know, a lot of daily devotions operate that way. And, and you can draw a lot of nourishment out of that. But sometimes you miss the big picture when you do that. One of the things that I want to bring to our attention today is a bit of the outline of what Luke is doing. When my son was going through school, especially about junior high, started getting these projects where we'd have to write reports on some topic, right? Like California missions when he was growing up in California. Fourth grade is always California missions. And you got to pick a mission and you got to assemble all of the data and make a report out of it. And what we would do is give him a bunch of index cards. And then he would take one thought and he would then look up, research all the facts he could find about that thought. And then he'd find another interesting thing, and he would write down everything about that. And then what you would do is you would compile those into paragraphs. And then you would put the paragraph in order, you would sequence it, and you would get this beautiful story. It's a great way to build a report. Well, that's what Luke is doing here. And what we're going to see here is that we're going to see parallel accounts. There's going to be two enunciations of this pending birth, this miraculous prophecy fulfilled. The angel enunciate or pronounce uh, the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. There are two miraculous conceptions, Elizabeth and Mary's. There's two blessed birthdays, and they're running parallel in these passages. There are two circumcisions. There's two prophetic... Um, praise songs about what the ministry, the mission uh, of the, the John the Baptist and Messiah will be. And then there's two summaries when we get to the end of this package that they're growing strong in the spirit, right? And they grew up. And so sometimes you miss the whole story, the big picture, right? If Say the flyover, right? From 30,000 feet, you're looking down on this story and you're seeing all these pieces and all of a sudden you can link them together. And that's what I hope we're going to be doing this morning as we look at John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the parallels, the outline of what Luke is trying to help us see so we can really find that linchpin that holds it all together. So, picking up at verse 7, 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. I mean, how exciting. A birth, a birthday, right? Something that we celebrate all the time. And, and so everybody gathers, and this woman who's old, past childbearing age, conceives miraculously. The angel comes and she has the baby. Woohoo! Exciting. Verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what they should have him called. And so this is part of the circumcision. Modern day uh, Jews will call this a brisk. It's a ceremony that they hold eight days after the birth of a male child when they will perform the circumcision. And in, in doing this, they're cutting away the flesh. It's something that was given as a covenant to Israel in Genesis chapter 17. We just finished Genesis not long ago. And, and this covenant is a sign to indicate that you are sealed to the nation of Israel. You're sealed to God. And it's something that all devout Jews would do. And of course, uh, 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're, they're priests, right? They're, this, they're, they do everything according to the ordinances of God, we have read. And so they're circumcising him. Fun little fact, interesting, about circumcision. God gave this commandment to us on the eighth day of a child's birth. And physiologically, we've studied this, and it, it's kind of interesting um, as a child is born, within the first five to seven days, the body is not producing vitamin K, which is necessary for blood clotting, okay? But starting on the eighth day, vitamin K kicks in, and there's plenty of vitamin K to help the blood clot so the child doesn't bleed out. Another thing, the, uh, um, what is it, prothrombin, it's a protein that's in the body. It's growing gradually over the first couple days, but it's so important in blood clotting. On the eighth day, it's at 110%, which is to say it's more than what it will be throughout the rest of the child's life. So God has designed it that when these, child, these, these young males go for their circumcision, they're at the perfect time and place in their whole lifespan in which to have this surgery and recover from it speedily. So they go ahead and they have this and they ask, what's the name going to be? And uh, they want to name him Zacharias, usually son of Zacharias. The firstborn son usually carries the father's name. But in this case, that's not going to happen. So they made signs, verse 62, to his father what they would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. John? John, it says, look at how they immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around him, and these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And those who heard them wept, kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Obviously, it was ominous when they got the message when he was offering incense in the tabernacle, you're going to have a baby, and he was struck deaf. And here it says they gave him a writing tablet indicating he was also, or I said struck dumb, and here he's struck possibly deaf. He can't hear them. But at any rate, when he says his name will be John, he writes it out, his tongue is loosed, and he can speak again. And remember, the angel Gabriel, when he said, what shall be the sign to the angel Gabriel, he was struck deaf. And that, well, that was, you, you don't believe me? You need proof? I'll give you proof. You can't talk. And one of the things that comes out of this passage right here, where he says his name will be John, then he's free to speak. Its tongue is loose because he's now saying what God said to him. This is what he was supposed to do as high priest. He was supposed to represent God and tell people what God is saying. And if he's not going to say what God said, then he's not going to say anything at all. It's, it's the same thing for, I know me, as I come up on Sunday mornings, but any of us as Christians, as we've given a ministry to witness to the world, we are to speak the words that God has given us to speak. I think uh, God gave me the... the um, picture of Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 2 where he's sending him to a people uh, that are like him but he says only speak the words that I tell you to speak and if I don't tell you to say anything then keep your mouth shut okay and and it's kind of the same for John right and it's the same for all of us we're sitting here and we have amazing encounters with God Gabriel you know in the middle of prayer and answered prayer wow but if you're not going to go forth and speak that which God gave you and he just fills you up, but there's no place for it to pour out, you end up getting something that's kind of like a spiritual constipation. You are so full 
of everything you've learned, but you're not pouring it out, all of a sudden you become ineffective. Nothing seems to go. Nothing seems to flow. You're just bound and can't move forward. And here his tongue is loosed. In this I see, and it's, we're going to see um, Luke talks a lot about the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This one is very much like the gift of tongues, the gift that we get where we can speak uh, in unknown languages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a list of the gifts in verse 10 would tell us, to another the working of miracles, another prophecy, another discerning of spirits, another different kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. And in uh, Corinthians, Paul goes on to explain in chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, to pursue love. That's more important than the gifts. The motivation always has to be love when you're working or operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. We'll get back to that one in a minute. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So God gives us this gift, this ability that we can speak to God, and uh, for no one understands him if he's speaking in a tongue. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Paul would go on to say, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. And you know, at the Springs Calvary Chapel, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're obviously not only in the Bible, biblical, but we see them in action. We see God manifest himself through believers, through saints, with various gifts as he would determine in different times and different places, one of them being the gift of tongues. Now, fundamentally, as you go through the scriptures, the gift of tongues is almost always just speaking in a foreign language. Uh, maybe you don't speak Cantonese or Farsi or Japanese or even Spanish and one day you have this need to speak to somebody and for whatever reason that just flows out of you. That could be a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's always to praise Him, to edify the body of Christ, to bring glory to God, as we see on the day of Pentecost. As they're all speaking in different languages, everybody understood, and they were magnifying and bringing glory to God. And so, a gift of tongues is, is, is powerful. And here, Zacharias isn't speaking the words God gave him, and now when he writes on the slate, his name is John, his tongue is loosed, and now he's able to speak. He's not speaking in a different language. Everybody understands him now, but he say, says his name is John, a gift of God, okay? And fear came upon all, right? It's like, wow, we've been watching this from the day he came out of the temple, and now through all the pregnancy and the delivery and the circumcision, and bam, he's given this opportunity to speak, it says in verse 67, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 12. One of the gifts is prophecy. The difference between the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy is to speak forth the words of God. You and I can all prophesy 
All we have to do is open up our Bible and read out loud, and you are prophesying. You are speaking forth the words of God. Now, there is a class of prophecy, a subcategory of things that are yet future, prophetic, we often say, um, foretelling what is going to happen. This has to be something that comes from God. And the way that you know it is of God is it comes to pass. And so often people will speak prophetically and they say, I know what's going to happen in the future. There's a way to judge whether or not that person is actually a prophet. Wait and see if it happens. If it doesn't happen, you can go back to Deuteronomy 18 where it says you're supposed to stone the prophets that speak in the name of God and are wrong, okay? So it's not something that you take on yourselves. But here, clearly, Zacharias is just being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks for this prophecy. This is one of the four Christmas songs that we're seeing here in the Gospel of Luke. There was the song of Elizabeth, there was the song of Mary, there's a song of Zacharias right here, and before the day's over, Lord willing, we'll hear the song of the angels at Jesus' birth. But here comes this song. This one's called the Benedictus. Remember the one from Mary we called the Magnificat because the first words were about magnifying the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. These are the good words, the benediction spoken by Zacharias at the brisk at the circumcision of his son John, okay? It says in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Remember that word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, okay? Speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the horn. He's the power of salvation. And uh, Zechariah is so happy to see his son, who is the herald, the one who goes before Jesus Christ being born. It says, uh, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets who have been since the world began. Interesting, we have holy prophets all the way back to the Garden of Eden and even in the days of Abel when he offered up a lamb for a sacrifice, speaking or acting prophetically about things to happen in the future, that sacrifice lamb. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Zechariah is so happy to see this pin this linchpin, this time where that Old Testament prophet, prophecy is going to be hitched together to the new covenant, the new promise of Messiah and salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he's singing of this in his song. Verse 76, and you, child, so now he's speaking, maybe even looking down at Johanan, John, in Elizabeth's arms as, as he's saying this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, the highest speaking of Christ Jesus, and he is the prophet. Um, For you will go before his face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring or the dawn, literally the sunrise, and I like the S-O-N rise, because this is really what it is saying, The day spring from on high has visited us to give us light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. And so here, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, breaks into a song, and we kind of have a Holy Ghost Hosanna hoedown right there in the middle of this whole party, right? And everybody's there, and he's just erupting in praise and thanksgiving um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. A couple things that we see here um, about this, when, it, when he talks about the testimony of who his son John the Baptist will be, the prophet of the highest, we see that um, he's going to give the knowledge of salvation. This is one of the elements. It's going to be by remission of sin, and it's going to be um, through the mercy of God, and it's going to lead us into the way of peace. And so this is what the Bible has been promising in the Old Testament and brings to pass now here in these verses. I love it. I'm going to bring a couple of them to, out for you. It talks about uh, he will go, go before his face, before the Lord, to prepare a way. We read this in Malachi in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter 4, the last couple verses of the Old Testament say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, who is uh, prefiguring John the Baptist. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. We go on, and it talks about to give knowledge of salvation to his people. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, Isaiah writes, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. And so we see the knowledge of salvation and by the remission of sins to make straight those paths. You know, confess your sins and prepare because Messiah is coming. And it talks then finally about on which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We, we get this quote. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. But he's quoting Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of the coming of Messiah. And in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward a more, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. It happens that Zebulun is where Nazareth is. This is where this little baby Jesus is um, to be born, or coming to be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem. It says in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So we have the benedictus, these, this overflow of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving as God has loosed Zechariah's tongue and he just breaks forth prophesying and declaring who his son would be and who his son would magnify. We move on then. Out of that, it says in verse 80, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. 
And so it's going to come about 30 years later. That's when a priest would go into the ministry. Remember, Johanan, John, son of Zacharias, is son of a priest. And so at 30, John would be up for his turn as priest. But in the meantime, he's going to grow up in the desert regions. This is where Zachariah and Elizabeth lived in the Judean hillside, in the wilderness, in the desert, if you will. And he's just going to be on his own. And these days of preparations are going to come upon him. And he's going to go really strong in the spirit in these days until his manifestation at about 30 years of age. Chapter 2, familiar passage to everybody. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Familiar passage. You've been to many, I'm sure, Christmas services. If you ha haven't, maybe you're hearing this for the first time. And maybe it would be good even to listen to this, maybe for the first time, not in December, but in July, in context, as Luke is laying out the parallels between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and these births, these miraculous births. But here he gives us, as a historian, the chronological order that we may know for sure, for safety, the things which we've been instructed. He lays this out. It came to pass in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was an adopted son, Octavian, of Julius Caesar. And he got involved uh, after Julius Caesar with different uh, emperors. There was actually three co-ruling over Rome. One of them was Anthony. And then Anthony got into this pickle with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And in this uh, triangle that was going on in those days, Octavius dominated and put down Anthony and became and was voted by the Senate the new Caesar. And they not only made him Caesar, but he wasn't Caesar Octavian. You know him better as Caesar Augustus. They gave him the title Augustus, which means of the gods. So they fundamentally not only promoted him to Caesar like president or uh, ruler of Rome, but they also gave him a title of deity, okay? They really raised him up on this, this pedestal, if you will. He would reign until about 14 A.D., and then Tiberius Caesar would follow him. I say that because it's under Tiberius Caesar that we read most of the story of Jesus and everything that was happening as we go through the Gospels. But in this portion, it's still Octavian, if you will, Caesar Augustus. And so he makes a decree that the world should be registered, a census. What he wanted to do was collect taxes. He had actually been embroiled in several battles, one with Anthony, but several battles where the Roman government had kind of took a, a, a beating and they needed to rebuild their military. What better way to do that than to tax all the people, get the money and build your military, okay? And so this census went out. It says it was in the days of Quirinius governing Syria. Now, some scholars will give you problems with this because it looks like Quirinius governed Syria uh, not for many years after this passage, and they say, see, it's not possible that, they could, that he could have been governing. But when you dig deeper and you do, do your homework, Quirinius was actually the proconsul of Sicily, an island in the Mediterranean, and Sicily was overruling temporarily 
all of Syria. And so Quirinius, even though he wasn't governing all of Syria at the time, was there in Sicily, and it happened during one of these tax collection seasons. came up about every 14 years. They would do a census. So anyways, if you do your backstory on that, Luke is trying to help us pin this date down as to when this birth occurs. Now, to pop somebody's bubble, if I have to, the chronology of where we get our calendar, the Gregorian calendar that starts on the year zero with the birth of Jesus Christ was riddled out about 400 A.D., 400 years after, Ono Domini, after Christ, uh, or after our Lord, and uh, there was a little bit of juggling in the dates. And what ended up happening, we have the records of that from a historian by the name of Josephus. But there was a typo that entered Josephus's records. And so most of the modern world for the last thousand years has held the Gregorian calendar date of zero, when in fact the typo, if you go back to documents earlier that Josephus wrote, we found earlier ones now, it wasn't that date. It was about four years earlier four to five years earlier. So the birth of Jesus Christ actually occurs prior to 4 B.C. So he was born four years before he was born, if you will. <laughs> Not really. I hope you're following me. Again, I don't bring this out to impress anybody. In fact, I think I probably just confuse a lot of people. Um, but the point is, you have to understand, the Word of God is airtight. And when you start getting things that maybe cause you to be interested or somebody says that's not right, dig in. Because the deeper you dig, the more you'll find, even in the areas where we seem to not have it right, it's actually more right than you ever imagined <laughs> every time you dig deeper, okay? So it's worth doing this digging, I guess is kind of my point on that. Anyways, they all went to be registered in their home, own city, in their hometown. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because of the, he was of the house and lineage of David. And so he was betrothed to Mary. We saw that last week. And uh, so they were espoused, if you will, but they hadn't consummated their marriage. But they're legally married, and now he's going to take his legally married wife with child, even though they haven't consummated their marriage, and he's going to go to his hometown where he hails from, where he was born, happens to be Bethlehem, okay? And so they call it the city of David because this is where David came from. He was son of Jesse. Fun to go back to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and learn about the descendants coming down from Ruth, and you'll find out that Jesse and then David, the youngest of seven brothers, they were from the town of Bethlehem, okay? And so this is uh, called the city of David, and this is where now Joseph is from, and he returns with his wife, okay? Verse 5. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, okay? Luke is very accurate in the details, and for what it's worth, there's a lot of scandal in that sentence, okay? To say that he is betrothed and he has a wife, but they haven't consummated their marriage, but she's got a baby, there's all kinds of problems with that, especially 
especially in this culture. But it's one of the other reasons why you can trust your Bible. Take it to the bank. Bet your life on it. Because God displays humanity, good, bad, and ugly, warts, wrinkles, and all. It's all there, right? If we were reading or writing some kind of fabulous spiritual novel to exalt whatever our chosen flavor of deity might be, we don't throw in all these bizarre wrinkles and warts and, and negative things about our God. We wouldn't write those things down. But this is the truth. This is how it really happened. Real people, real salvation, real God, real heaven, real eternal life. It's in these pages. So, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And I'm sure if you've been to Christmas programs, you, you know, because the town was so crowded with people from out of town, and Bethlehem is not a big city, okay? It's not like they have uh, Best Western out on the interstate and everybody can just check in. Um, it's, it's a small community, and people from whatever heritage are now flocking into the city. And you can be sure this is going on all around Israel, but they can't get a room for the night, right? And how many, it's so interesting to me, because there was no room in the inn, just that little phrase or that little sentence, how many songs do we have? How many Christmas movies have we watched? How many pageants have we seen? How many people have interpreted it and then tried to express it and add color and dimension and, and bring this whole thing to life. And depending on where you grew up and what church you went to your Christmas pageant at or what movie you've seen or what song you've heard, you probably have your impressions of what this was like. It doesn't say a lot, right? A lot of that is speculation. And it's fair to say that, but what we can be pretty certain of is there is this young woman. We already know she's in her teens. She's pregnant. They've just traveled 90 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It doesn't even say she rode a donkey. We don't know. She may have walked, okay? And, and she's about to give birth, and they can't find a place to stay. And so those are things that are there. They're in the text. And then we go from there and try to imagine what this must have been like. But it would have been, again, one of those moments in Mary's life full of agitation and trouble and concern and wonder. <laughs> What's going to happen to me? Okay? And uh, it says that they were able to bring forth the baby in a manger. Okay? Um, a manger basically is, is the word for a, a corral or more often and more specifically usually used of a feeding trough, okay, the place where they would put the, the food for the lambs, the goats, the cattle, whatever was using that particular um, corral or stall. Now, if you go to Bethlehem today, it's filled with uh, limestone hills, and many of these have escarpments where it's just a limestone face, and there's a lot of pockets in the limestone that have been eroded out, and they make wonderful places to you know, keep your animals. Just put a little fence across the front of it. And you can go into this limestone cave. You can even carve a niche out of the cave if you would and make a little um, basin where you would put the feed or you'd put the water for the animals. These are all kinds of things people have speculated. And it, it does kind of bring forth a picture, but it does say that she laid him 
in the manger. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, just old rags, much as we do with babies today. I remember with, when our son was born, he just hated to be loose. His hands would move and it would just agitate him and it would just spiral out of control. But we would just wrap him up like a burrito, super tight, and he was completely content, you know. And this is something that's been going on. Moms figured that out a long time ago. So they got this baby just born, wrap him up really tight, and place him in the feed trough. Interesting little thing, Bethlehem, the Hebrew name, Beth means house, Lehem means bread. And they took Jesus Christ, the bread of life, come down from heaven, and they placed him in the feed trough, the place that you'd usually put the bread for all the livestock, if you will. And so th this is the birth, and it's pretty simple. Luke doesn't go into great details. It obviously must have been an uncomplicated birth. Um, verse 8, Now there was in the same country shepherds living out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord stood around them, and they were greatly afraid. They were out in their flocks watching by night. You know, it was Rachel who was um, Jacob's favorite wife who died in childbirth, giving birth to Bethlehem, and she never made it back to Hebron where the family was supposed to be. She was buried at Bethlehem, and there's a tower in Bethlehem that was dedicated to Rachel, and it's really the tower where they would watch the flocks. There's is the place there. And so is that the place? Maybe. But in the hillsides, there's shepherds. They're out watching their flocks by night. And uh, it, it leads us to a couple things. I don't want to get into great detail on this. You can do your homework. But maybe it would be interesting for some of you guys that like to dig deeper into these things. It probably wasn't, almost certainly wasn't, December, December 25th when we have this come to pass. Um, for starters, often the flocks would not be out in the fields in December. While it is relatively uh, warm compared to us in the middle of December, uh, it still gets snow, it still gets really cold in Israel at that time of year. And a little fun thing you can play with if you want to, you can look back to the birth or the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist when Zechariah was serving according to his order of the priest, the course of Abiha. And when you start putting these things together, you can go back into 1 Chronicles chapter 24 where David sets out the courses. You can find Abiha there and you'll find out what month of the year they would have served when the announcement would have come to, John, or to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. And you move forward through the chronology of how long Mary was hiding herself for five months and then Elizabeth comes and she stays for three months. And we see that this announcement of, uh, the, the, from the angel Gabriel would have come to Mary about January, February. The announcement to John the Baptist would have been about July, August, and you start following the pregnancy through. We know there's nine months. You can work with that calendar. And what you end up with is Jesus most likely being born September, October. Okay? Now, there is a different way that you can work it out, and you'll come up with something more around May, June. But the strongest, as you can pull from the Bible evidence, is that Jesus would have been born during the fall feasts, the feasts of uh, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, 
and tabernacles. It was been this time of gathering the people together. And so we don't know. I'm putting that out for you, but you can do your homework and dig. I've done my homework and dug, and that's why I'm sharing that with you. I find it rather interesting um, how this all comes together. At any rate, the angels are there, okay, or the shepherds are there, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and, and the glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were greatly afraid. Verse 10, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you the gospel. Is that what it says in your Bible? Actually, it is what it says in your Bible. Most of us have glad tidings, but that's just a translation of the word evangel, which is where we get the word for the gospel, the good news, okay? That God has seen our suffering, that God has sent his son to stand in our place, to be a substitute for us, that we can be forgiven our sins and be cleansed white as snow. We can be children of God. So the angel says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to the Jews. Is that what it says in your Bible? To all people, all nations, everybody that comes from Adam. There we, this is for you and me. It's for the whole planet. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We know this is a famous passage. Um, a virgin will give birth and have a child, and for unto you is born a son, for unto you a child is given. And uh, I'm looking that one up really quick here. Uh, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Whew, that is good news. That child is born, okay? This is the birth, the incarnation. Carne is the word we get like uh, um, carne asada, right? It's meat, okay? It's flesh. God took on flesh. He enrobed himself in human form. The incarnation, okay? He became human for us. Absolutely necessary in the whole linchpin of the story of Christmas, God must become man, that he can die in our place, a substitutionary atonement. And, and the Bible talks about this from the very first sacrifice, Cain and Abel after Eden and, and, and the coverings for sin and the religious system of Judaism that requires that atonement be made for sin, that some blood must be shed to cover sin. And that blood, to cover the sin of a human, has to be human blood. It has to be man. And this is why God, from eternity past, eternity forever, became flesh and blood and dwelt amongst us, and we beget His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's, that's the heart of Christmas right there. And so, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and here comes Christmas song number four, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
simple song, but I bet you've sung it, okay? It's incorporated in all kinds of Christmas songs that we sing during Christmas season. Um, but glory to God. This is the beginning of the song. It's all glory to God. This is all about God, always has been, always will be. God's the one who designed it. God's the one who pulled it off. It's all about God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Or probably a better way to say that as it's translated out, if you have a New International Version or some other versions, it will say, toward men of goodwill on whom his favor rests, right? And on earth, peace toward men of goodwill. Okay, so it's not that peace is going to come upon every soul. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know forgiveness of sin, if you do not know that God has paid your debt, you're still under the curse. <laughs> you're still bound for destruction. And there's no peace there. But on those upon whom his favor rests, Men who have received that good news, those glad tidings that there is a king and he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and he has called you his own. You are chosen. You are children of God. That is ultimate shalom. That is ultimate becoming who God created you to be. And so there's peace there. It's a beautiful song. Gloria in excelsis Deo, right? You may have read that or sung that in the Latin. Verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, okay? Uh, I always quip, this is that first Christmas rush. If you've ever been involved in a Christmas rush, it happened with the shepherds first, okay? That traffic jam you're in wasn't the first one. They're just like, can't get there quick enough. And you can imagine, you're watching flocks, okay? You're lowly, despised, outcast, shepherds, stinky, looked down upon people. And the great news, the gospel, the glad tidings comes to you out in the wilderness. And you're told there's going to be a sign. Okay, I don't know what we just saw, but let's go figure out. If it's true, we should find a babe as they said, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. So they, they hurry. They go into Bethlehem and they search around. It says that they found the babe. That word found implies searching, okay? That, that wasn't part of it. They didn't just like walk in and see the one house with the glow coming out. It wasn't like that. They have to go from door to door. Is there a baby born here? Is there a baby born here? Is there a baby born here? And, and it's not even in a house. It's in a manger. It's not in an inn. It's out back somewhere. But when they do finally find him, it confirms. Wow, this is amazing. It was not common to put your babies in a cattle trough. This is not what people generally did, okay? Uh, the birth of a baby is something to be celebrated, prepared for, and, 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 and anticipated. But this one kind of came off spontaneously. They had to work with what they had, right? So they, they find him um, just as it had been told them. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Christmas message. Come and see. Have you met Jesus Christ? Do you know the good news? Do you realize that God from the foundation of the earth has ordained that he would take on human flesh and go to the cross in your place? Because he knew you were a sinner. 
and he knew you couldn't do it by yourself. And all your religious works and acts and deeds will never be good enough to measure up to heaven because heaven is not for good people. Heaven's for saved people, saved sinners, okay? That's where heaven is. We're those who have accepted the work done on our behalf on the cross 2,000 years ago. you done been saved. You can't get yourself saved. You've been saved. But the question is, have you accepted it? Have you received it? Have you come and seen and recognized Jesus Christ? You're my Lord. You're my Savior. To you I owe my life. Come and see and then go make widely known. Go and tell the world, I know Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about what I've seen. Let me tell you about what I know. Let me tell you about what's happened to me since I have accepted Jesus Christ. I am not the same. I'm a new creation. That old man, he's dead. I'm walking in this path to glory. And, and, and you all have a testimony. Every one of us does. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in the good news of the incarnation, the linchpin of all history, if you own that, you have a testimony. You have your own story. And that story is truth. I know we live in a postmodern era where everybody has their own truth, right? And they don't look at to objective truths. This is objective truth, but your truth is valid. And you can't let anybody tell you what you tell them when you say, I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. My debt is paid. My guilt has been erased. My shame is gone. I have hope. I have joy. I have glory. Even in the middle of the most troubling, darkest, scariest circumstances, I'm never alone because Jesus is there with me. You have a testimony. These shepherds had the testimony, and they made it widely known. But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. That's not to say that she didn't tell people. In fact, she was probably being interviewed by Luke for this very passage right here. But the point was, not only did they go make it widely known, but they never let it go, especially Mary. Can you imagine the mother of this child? You're going to be the mother of God. What's that going to look like? Wow. You just hold it in your heart. What's the future hold for me? And she pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told them. Verse 21, when the eight dates were completed. What eight days? If you've been paying any attention to Luke, this is when they circumcised the child. This is the time that Leviticus and uh, Genesis told them they should do it on this day. Um, and it says when the days uh, were come, for the complete circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. And that's kind of traditional even in Judaism today. You don't have to name your baby the day it's born. I've been to many hospitals where people don't know the name of their child till after the child is born. Nowadays, with our government, they won't let you leave until you give the baby a name. In the Philippines, I love it because a lot of people follow this tradition, but they want to take the baby home, like right away. But in order to get out of the hospital, they have to put a name on the birth certificate. And I don't know the percentages. I've never run it down. But we have a dear friend who runs the National Statistics Organization for our region of the Philippines. We'd always take our babies the, that came to us from, at Rainbow and make sure that all their papers were in order. But in the Philippines, it's super common to meet people whose name is boy or girl. 
That's just what their name is. And, and a lot of them just keep that name forever. What's your name? Hi, I'm Boy. You know, it's like, cool. Happy to meet you, Boy. Um, but they waited for the brisk, for the circumcision ceremony, and then they pronounced the name on him. It was official naming ceremony now that they have been dedicated to God. Okay, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22, now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So you can look in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 8, and there's laws for bringing a child because the mother was considered unclean. The act of having a child and the blood shed and all these kinds of things would make her impure and unclean, and she couldn't go to the temple until she had passed through this period of ceremonial uh, cleansing, if you will. And for male babies, it would be 33 days. For females, it was 66 days, okay? So if you take the first seven days of, uh, before the um, circumcision and you get the 33, it's about 40 days later. They're going to go to the temple to dedicate Jesus in the temple, okay? So, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, are completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's Exodus 13.1. Or separated to the Lord. And so, having a, a male child was considered a, a super blessing, and they would have to come in and go through the, the ceremony, it says here in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And Luke writes down a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you go back to Leviticus 12 at verse 8, it tells us that they would normally bring a lamb. But if you can't afford a lamb, if you're poor, then you could bring two doves. Clearly, Joseph and Mary were not affluent. They weren't wealthy people. They were just common people. Didn't have two nickels to rub together, two shekels to rub together. They were able to get enough to buy the sacrifice that was required for the dedication to doves. But in God's infinite wisdom, they brought the lamb too, Jesus Christ. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Again, Luke points out, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is moving on all these people, right? That uh, they're seeing things through God's eyes. They're, they're having knowledge that you couldn't have outside of God revealing to it. In fact, Simeon here is going to have a word of knowledge, information that you can't know unless God reveals it to you. Maybe you've had that experience. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can be talking with somebody and know something about them that's going on in their life or some kind of issue that they've never told you. There is no way you could possibly know it. But in your heart, God just suppresses upon you. This person was abused as a child. And you don't know that about them, but God just speaks it in your heart. And you ask Him, I don't mean to be forward, but you know we're talking about these things. Were you abused as a child? Right, And they break down and they cry and like, how do you know that? I didn't tell anybody ever, forever. It's like, I don't know, God told me. These are words of knowledge, right? Well, here, Simeon's going to get this fantastic word of knowledge. It says that he was um, a devout man and he was waiting, 
okay? That means he was actively waiting. He wasn't just like taking a nap waiting. He was looking eagerly, anticipating the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. The parakletos, literally, is what it says, the comforter of Israel, that one who would bring wholeness and health and healing to the nation of Israel. He was a devout Jew, and he was looking for the day that God would make things right and peace would rule. And uh, so he's looking for the consolation, and the Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That's a gift. That's the gift of the word of knowledge, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's so cool, right? It's appointed for every man uh, a, a judgment. There's a day of judgment, and, and, and we know this, but God had told him something extra. You're going to see Jesus before you die, right? And I think this is so cool. Um, so he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, or Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, your Yeshua, your Jesus, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I love this. Luke is very careful to record this. Simeon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recognizes that this Jesus Christ is for all people, Jew and Gentile, as has been spoken from time past. The day has finally come. You're letting your servant depart in peace. I can die now, happy. Everything on my bucket list is checked off. I'm looking at Jesus Christ. Um, I love that. Um, it says, and Joseph, his stepfather, right? Not, not God the Holy Spirit is his father. But And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts may, of many hearts may be revealed. Kind of heavy, right? The first part of this is just exciting. It's exuberant. It's just joyful. Wow, it's amazing. The consolation of Israel. I get to see it with my own eyes, right? I love what Dallas shares when he talks about this passage. It's like, it's, it's one of those things you should never do, but no doubt Simon's holding Jesus and just shaking him, right? You can't believe I see him. You know, he's so excited. I, I'm sure that probably wasn't how it happened, but you can kind of imagine the energy that's there. And uh, then he says, you know, this sign, it's going to be spoken against. A sword will pierce you, right? And uh, Zechariah 12 says, they will look upon him, the nation of Israel, whom they pierced as of an only begotten son of Israel. There's coming a day when the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And uh, this sword that's going to pierce uh, her soul, right? It's certainly a sword pierced Jesus's heart as he hung on the cross. And uh, we today even have that sword, that living word of God that pierces between um, soul and spirit, right? And bone and marrow. And, and, and it just gets right to the heart. And this is what Jesus is going to be. He's going to be, bring division. It's going to be kind of difficult for some people. Verse 36, and worship team, come up. 
There was one, Anna, a prophetess of the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age, and she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers day and night. So she's just wholly devoted, and she just hangs out at church all the time, and she prays, and she fasts, and she, she's doing this work. I, I think when we get to heaven and we see all the people surrounded by the throne and we're all going to cast our crowns, right up there in the front row is going to be Anna and others like her. And it's like, man, did you like do evangelical crusades like Billy Graham or did you write a letter like the Apostle Paul? And, and Jesus said, man, she prayed. She prayed diligently. She fasted. She took her walk with the Lord so serious and here her prayers are answered. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him and all those who looked for the redemption of Israel, eagerly expecting Jesus. And as Luke opened, and this parallel passage between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, verse 39, so when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, their city of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So you see this. Old Testament, law. New Testament, liberty. Grace, hope, and joy. But it's really not the Christmas story until you put Jesus in. And that's what makes it work, all right? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Christmas that we celebrate all year long. Lord, as we have Jesus birthed in our hearts as we give expression to your Holy Spirit, as you fill us to go into the world and tell everybody what we've seen. We pray, Lord Jesus, that this Christmas, today, would be a day of rejoicing and celebration and worship of the good, glorious things that you've done on our behalf. Lord, I pray for every soul in this room that as we have received, that we would give that we would pour out what you have poured into us, that we could help more people to see the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Remember, next Sunday, Agape Feast. Go ahead and bring your goodies. But this week, we still got cookies and coffee, fellowship in the hall. I'm up here for prayer. Y'all get prayer. I hope you're getting prayer every Sunday. I hope you're finding a brother or a sister and just saying, can you pray for me? And they'll say, what do you need me to pray for? And you'll say, I don't know, just pray for me. And they can just pray blessing on you. Bless each other in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.